Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pray. Father God, you are a holy God. You dwell in unapproachable light. And yet you saw fit to not only make us, but redeem us when we rebelled against you for no reason other than your holy name and to shine forth your glory. Lord God, um, you love us for reasons that we can't fathom. Lord, each person here, each of us, you know intimately. You created us in the inmost place. You know every one of our thoughts. You know each one of your people. Lord God, feed your sheep. Your people don't need to hear from a man. They need to hear from you. Lord God, would you um, um, bless the preaching of your word? Would you open our ears and give us eyes to see? Would you um, meet each person to slake their thirst, the, the, the hunger of their soul, Lord God, meet it with the only way that it can be met in you, by you, through you, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as Ryan said, um, my name is Ken Yu, and I'm one of the privileged to serve as one of the elders here. And um, today, uh, as we kind of look around in our world, it's pretty hard not to see evidence that we're facing some very difficult times. We just came through a worldwide pandemic. 2022 um, saw the second most mass killings in U.S. history. And tragically, 2023 is on pace to break the record. The U.S. ranks 34th in life expectancy, and that has been, um, the increase of that stopped in 2014 and has now declined to levels of 1996. Death rates in the U.S. from alcohol, drugs, and suicide have risen dramatically since 2000. Educational test scores, church attendance, and morality in general are declining. And you all know how easily it would be for me just to go on with this tale of woe. But with so much bad news, it's a temptation to simply want to withdraw from this declining world as much as possible, hunker down, and just wait for Jesus to return. But if you think that things in our world the church of God, or your life are too far gone, so messed up that there's no hope, you're wrong. Ezekiel shows us that our holy God calls us to courage in horrendously difficult times because of his certain promise of real relational hope. The Israelites, despite many prophets, including, as we've just recently heard, Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, confirmed the covenantal curses 
for disobedience foretold in Deuteronomy, but they were still under the impression that God would never follow through on his threats. They believed that his link to the land, to them, to Jerusalem, and to the house of David meant that he would not, even could not, follow through and punish them. They were right about his covenantal faithfulness, but they were completely misunderstood his holiness. He is not like a man. He never goes along to get along. As Pastor Dan preached so clearly last week from Lamentations, to vindicate his holiness, he will bring consequences for persisting sin. Ezekiel continued to proclaim this same message to them in most jarring terms. But even exiled, Israel did not listen. But then after the Davidic king was deposed, Jerusalem destroyed, and the temple leveled by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 587, the exiles must have thought that all hope was lost. Yet somehow, by his amazing grace and for the sake of his holy name, he promised to restore them, to restore their land, and to bless them so abundantly that all the surrounding nations would know that he is the Lord. Ezekiel's name means God strengthens or toughens, or may God strengthen or toughen. And in many ways, his name summarizes his ministry, as we'll see. Ezekiel came from the priestly line, taken by the Babylonians when he was about 25, during the second large deportation of exiles in 597. He received his first prophetic vision when he was about 30 years old, and he... Uh, that corresponds to when priests typically began ministry, and he prophesied about 22 years among the exiles. Now, the book of Ezekiel has a reputation of being hard to understand. And in fact, due to its complexities, Jewish rabbinic trainees were not even allowed to read the temple visions at the beginning and end of Ezekiel until they were 30 years old. But in spite of the challenges to our understanding, Ezekiel shines forth the glory of God in amazing, almost unique ways. Ian Duguid, a commentator on Ezekiel, says of the book, it answers every question in the Bible. So clearly, this is a book to be wrestled with. And like Jacob's wrestling with God, wrestling with God's uh, um, revelation in Ezekiel is more than worth any effort because we're gonna see his glory and his grace more clearly. Now the outline of Ezekiel, we can see here, it begins with Ezekiel's call and commissioning starting at chapter one, verse one, going through the end of chapter three, and then oracles of doom beginning in chapter four and going through the end of chapter 24, and then oracles against the nations beginning in chapter 25, verse one, through the end of chapter 32, and finally, oracles of good news, beginning at chapter 33, verse 1, and then going through the end of the book, chapter 48. Today, we're going to focus on Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 38. I'm going to break these into verses into three sections, reading each in turn. And this passage shows us that God calls his people to courage in very difficult times because of his certain promise of real, 
relational hope. So with the first section, beginning in verse 16, we read, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and by their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. From these verses, we can be encouraged that God is holy and real. Now, when you read something like this, or if you read in some other sections in Ezekiel, it would be natural to think, did God really just say that? Is that a good way to talk in church? But verses 16 and 17 summarize in graphic language the awfulness of Israel's sin. Detailed in repeated oracles from Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 24, and in particular, we'll look at chapters 16 and 23. The, the, this um, word to Ezekiel begins with the term son of man. And now this term is used 93 times in this book as God's name for Ezekiel, but just once in the entire Old Testament um, as addressing a man. And it emphasizes God's holiness and mankind's frailty and dependence. And then in talking about his people, over half of the Old Testament use of the house or family of Israel, rather than the commonly used sons of Israel, is in Ezekiel. God in this way affirms his covenantal relationship with Ezekiel, calling them a family, while acknowledging their rebellion, withholding the title sons. In these verses, um, 16 and 17, the description of the sin here is an extension of two allegories that God gave Ezekiel in chapters 16 and 23. First, in chapter 16, Jerusalem is compared with a faithless bride of pagan origin that God cleansed, cared for, clothed, and adorned. And then in chapter 23, in another allegory, uh, Israel is complete. Uh, we, we have an allegory of two sisters. One, the elder, Ohala, representing Samaria, and the younger, Ohalabah, representing Jerusalem. That God married in turns, and they both became unfaithful, as we read in chapter 23, beginning in verse 36. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohala and Ohalabah? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. 
They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did at my house. They even sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and behold, they came. For you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table spread before it on which you had placed my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and with men of the common sort. Trunkards were brought from the wilderness, and they put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Rather than God's beautiful creation and good gifts being stewarded faithfully for his glory and the good of others, they were spread abroad violently with abandon, most glaringly smearing the name and glory of God by their ingratitude and myriad of sins. Now returning to our passage in 36, in verses 18 and 19 then, we're not surprised in the least that God poured out his wrath and scattered Israel and judged them for their indiscriminate bloodshed, child sacrifice, evil deeds, and idolatry described as having defiled the land. In verses 20 and 21, as they were exiled to the nations, God says they continued to profane his holy name. In those days, people associated deities with nations and lands. And as a result, the people of Babylon, where Judah was exiled, naturally believed their God was stronger than the God of Israel. In this way, Israel further profaned God's character and power. What aspects of God's character are displayed in this section? First, his holiness. Second, he is real with them. In his loving kindness, he gives his people the law, tells them how and when they fall short of it, and he speaks very plainly with Israel in ways that they transgress the law. In this way, God is being real with them. They're not left to guess. In the same way, his prophets display his loving realness to his people, Ezekiel especially so. They tell it like it is. And third, the character, uh, aspect of character in this section and throughout, seen in this section and also throughout Ezekiel, um, could be summarized as divine jealousy. One commentator said, indeed, the word kinah, which is Hebrew for divine jealousy, appearing ten times in the book, expresses the underlying motif of his ministry. Because God alone is worthy of worship, um, divine jealousy is righteous, good, and holy. God's holy jealousy means he will not look the other way. He will not be okay with something falling far short of his glory and love for the people called by his name. God is the only righteous, omniscient, perfectly loving judge. Psalm 56 says he keeps every one of our tears in a bottle. In the entire exile and destruction that he brought on Judah, 
It was exactly measured according to their need. And we see this described in this passage from Isaiah. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Though the Bible does not record Israel repenting during Ezekiel's ministry, scholars believe that after Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed, as Ezekiel foretold, that his prophecies were used by God to finally turn Israel away from their idolatry. Evidence they note is that after their return from exile, Israel did not have the same appetite for idolatry that it had previously. Are there any persisting sins you've wanted to keep for yourself despite many warnings? Christian, please know this. God not only knows about all these areas, in his perfectly loving divine jealousy, he will bring them to light. Beloved, please don't settle for the lies of the enemy. Do you want to know the truth about God and yourself? Are you pursuing knowing God in yourself, setting aside time for prayerful meditation on his word and letting others speak into your life? The divine lover of our souls can never compromise with sin. He saved us wholly for himself. He will abide no other suitors in our life. That brings us to our second section, beginning at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. 
I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. You can see from these verses that we can be courageous in difficulty because God is intensely and graciously relational. In verse 22, God underscores his holiness and separateness from us repeating that it's not for the sake of the house of Israel that he's going to act, but for the, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And we've discussed this already. And verse 23 tells us, he will act so that the nations will know that I am the Lord when I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In verse 24, it says that he will do this by taking the nation of Judah gathering them from the nations, and then bringing them again to their own land. Verses 25 through 27 show us an amazing picture of redemption. Ezekiel doesn't use any Hebrew words for redemption, steadfast love, grace, or salvation. And yet we see an intensely relational act solely on his part of sprinkling clean water on them. They are pronounced clean, from all their unrighteousness and from their idols. He cleanses not only the outside, but in one of the most beautiful pictures of regeneration perhaps in the entire Bible, he promises to give them a new heart and a new spirit, to take what has amounted to a heart of stone regarding fidelity to God's covenant and to give them a heart of flesh, to take their stony hard heart and to give them a soft, pliable heart one his spirit can dwell in. Then, by his indwelling spirit, he will cause them to walk in his ways and be careful to obey all his rules. God is doing something new amongst his people. Now, maybe there was some partial fulfillment after Ezekiel's time in, of these verses. The exiles returned to Judah, they rebuilt the temple, and they turned away from idolatry. But we see this most clearly pointing to Christ, who restores us to relationship with the Father through repentance unto faith in him, who indwells us as his temple, and who gives us his sanctifying spirit. In verses 28 to 30, our holy God, after incredibly promising to cleanse them and to instill new spiritual life, promises that they will dwell in the land that he originally gave to them so that they would be his people and he would be their God for no reason beyond his unfathomable covenantal love. He promises to act to restore their relationship to him by delivering them from all their uncleanness. And if any more could be imagined, he promises to restore the fertility of the land they've defiled by their abominations so that they may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. In verses 31 and 32, God promises something even more incredible, genuine repentance 
And this is not seen in Israel frequently. And we can see that it's God's kindness that leads Israel to repentance. And this is something that Paul reminds us of also in Romans 2.4. Or, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In sum, God promises to vindicate his holiness by inwardly transforming Israel, showering blessing upon them so that they will loathe their sin and no longer suffer reproach from their neighbors. This is something God wants for us also, as it says in Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is God exposing your sin? Do you see that as his grace? Do you see God as the divine lover of your soul whose kindness leads you to repentance? Do you believe this? If you're struggling with feelings of condemnation this morning, as a believer, know that God is graciously working in you. He has cleansed you by the blood of Christ from all your iniquities. Christ stands every moment in every circumstance to present you holy and blameless before the Father. If you have not trusted, trusted Christ as your Savior, hear the hope offered to you. Trust in the perfect sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ, to exchange your heart of stone for a heart of flesh and receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and freedom to follow him with a whole heart. This is the holy, real, and relational love of God. He makes our sin as plain as day. He cleanses us from all our sins. He transforms us to hate and loathe our sin. He causes us to no longer be condemned by our sin. This is our God, holy, real, and relational. That brings us to our third section, beginning at verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock like a flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. 
then they will know that I am the Lord. We can take courage in the certain hope of God's promise, which also provides the only hope for the world. Verses 33 to 36 show that instead of profaning the name of God, the nations will magnify his name, marveling at how a waste could be remade into a land like the Garden of Eden. This is God doing something new. The glory and love, uh, his glory and love are being poured out in the thriving of his people and the land that they inhabit so that the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. After revealing their sin, promising to graciously and relationally redeem and sanctify them, God gives them certain hope. In this darkest hour for Judah, God makes promises to renew, uh, to renew them in a way that almost looks like recreation. And in this way, he provides them great hope. Because God's steadfast love, they knew and we know that we have a certain hope in his promise. For New Testament believers, this certain hope is personified in Jesus Christ. We can read in 1 Peter beginning uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now as we turn to our passage in Ezekiel, in verses 37 and 38, God further acts to give them hope. He lets them ask for one thing, to be increased like a flock of sheep, lambs set apart for service to the Lord. Here we see an echo of God's original call to Abraham, that he would become a great nation who would be a blessing to all nations and to Israel through Moses, that if they obeyed him, they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was the culmination of hope that God gave to exiled Israel to be increased like a flock set apart for service to him. Where do we find hope in the world today? Is it in political, technological, or medical improvements? As beneficial as those can be, they don't address the root issue and they don't provide the hope God promises. The real question is, how can a holy God dwell with man? Paul gives the answer in Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And to people who put their hope in him, we read in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's easy for me to be tempted to lose hope when I see the fallenness of our world, experience relational conflict, or see my own selfish, critical heart. In these times, I can lose heart that God is working, that he has the power to transform the world, other people, or even my own heart. In those times, I need to remember God's gracious invitation to look up to him, to ask him to enlarge my heart, to increase his flock, that we would know that he is the Lord. What is seeking to steal your hope right now? Are God's certain promises providing you courage in your darkest hour? Are you encouraged that the true aim of your trials is to grow you in faith and glorify um, Christ? Do you see the gospel as the only hope we as God's people hold out to the world? Like Ezekiel's audience, we too are called exiles and sojourners. We also often have been unfaithful. Only God knows all the reasons why he's allowing all the evil that we see coming into our world right now. But there are several things that we can know for sure. First, our God is a certain refuge who will provide for our every need. Second, there is no hope for the world apart from the power of the gospel. Third, God has placed his people here in this time that all the remaining nations shall know that the Lord, his power, his glory, and his majestic works, that they might be saved from the coming destruction. Ezekiel shows us that God calls his people to courage in very difficult times because of his certain promise of real relational hope. For the sake of his holy name, God will do whatever is necessary to purify a holy people for himself. Our certain hope is also the only hope for the world. His jealousy for his own glory has caused him to redeem a holy people for himself through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. This morning, take heart in his certain promise of real relational hope when the world and your life seem the darkest. Let's pray. Lord God, we are privileged to be your people. We have your word here for us. Lord God, um, you are, um, you spoke to your people um, in Judah after they had rebelled in awful ways, and we too confess that we have rebelled against you in many, many ways. And yet you redeemed them from all of that through no um, merit of their own, simply 
for the glory of your holy name, to vindicate your holiness. Lord God, would you vindicate your holiness today um, in your people, in this world that we see, that we might hold out um, hope, uh, shining like lights in a crooked and faithless generation, that we might um, save many um, to understand that their hope is the hope of the gospel. Their hope is um, found in Jesus Christ alone and only there. We're there, will there and our um, uh, hope be realized, our joy be realized, and our purpose be realized. We pray these things in your precious name, Lord. Amen.